when he is facing these things in the course of his life. It's attributed to David, and uh, not really any historical setting given at the beginning of the psalm. We start out here, it says, My soul waits in silence for God only. From Him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will you assail a man that you may murder him, all of you, like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence? They have counseled only to thrust him down from his high position. They delight in falsehood. They bless with their mouth, but inwardly they curse. Uh, the other image that comes to mind in these first uh, four, five, three or four verses here is if you've ever been driving through the country and you see one of those old barns, right? It looks like the next strong breeze is going to come crashing down, right? That's the picture that the psalmist is painting for us of how he feels in light of the opposition of the wicked who are trying to overthrow him. Like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence. Um, fences wear out, right? And over time, if you don't do things to keep them up, they get to the point where they're just propped up with a piece of wood or tied to other things. Uh, I forget where I was one time, but the guy had a fence, and then he had like another fence that he had attached to that fence to try to keep the first fence up, and both of them were falling down. I mean, that's sort of the imagery that we have here in this psalm of the position in which we find ourselves when there are those who oppose us. In the midst of those circumstances, Notice that he says, my soul, and the word there is supplied for us, waits in silence for God only. From him is my salvation. One of the hardest things, I think, for us to do when we are in a situation of turmoil is not to do something. Especially for guys. Something's broken, we want to fix it. Um, I forget... I think the sump pump was the most recent thing I had to fix at our house, but there was some other thing before that. I think the sink was clogged or something like that. And Kelly told me about it. And so I went to go get some stuff. And she's like, no, 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 we're going to, let, let's do this thing first. I was like, but this is broken. We got to fix it, you know? And so we have that sense when things are going on that it needs to be fixed and I need to be the one to fix it. And the psalmist is saying this, God's the one who's got to fix this. So the first part we agree with, it needs to be fixed. But the second part is, but you can't do it. God has to do it. So my soul waits in silence for God only. From him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. I'm not arguing that we sit back and do nothing in the course of our Christian lives. I am saying when we are overwhelmed by trouble outside of our control, our common response is to fret and to worry and to try to do things that are not actually going to fix it. And the psalmist here is setting for us an example of waiting for God. What's the circumstance that he faces? There are those who are assailing him, seeking to murder him, seeking as if he's this wall, this precarious position to push him down, to knock him over, to bring him to destruction, to his end. Verse 4 describes what sort of people they are like. They are those who scheme. They have counseled only to thrust him down from his high position. Uh, as a king, David was in a high position, but the reason he was in that position is not because he picked it for himself. It's because God put him there. And so there's an element, although the psalm doesn't explicitly bring this out, we see this from other passages, that when people opposed 
God's appointed ruler in the history of Israel, it was because they were opposing God himself. And so it would be possible for David to take this as a personal attack, and it was to some extent, but even more it was a sign of their rebellion against God. What, was, what were they like? They're schemers. They are those who delight in falsehood. Uh, broadly speaking, that is our natural tendency. We lie about a variety of things, and those lies take a variety of forms. It can be from making excuses for something that we committed to that we don't actually feel like showing up for by the time that it comes around. Some party, someone you think, I'm, I'm tired. What, what can I say to this person so I can get out of this? And sometimes we come up with creative things that aren't the real reason that we don't want to go, but we don't want to say the real reason that we don't want to go because then the person will be mad at us. I'm sure none of us ever do that. But, uh, so that's one way that we can um, show falsehood. Sometimes it's just very clearly saying something that's not true. Um, sometimes it's just changing the story a little bit to put ourselves in a better light. I have this conversation with my students. Why did you, I asked you to do this and you did this other thing. But here's all my reasons why it was okay for me to do this thing, even though it wasn't the right thing to do. But the reality was, it's a falsehood. We're painting ourselves in a different light. The specific type of falsehood that they are apparently exercising here is a kind of hypocrisy that says one thing to a person's face and another when they're not there. Look at what it says. They bless with their mouth, but inwardly they curse. I don't think this psalm is about Absalom, but this is sort of how he acted, right? When he was with David, here's my father, I love him, and, and I'm taking advantage of his affection for me. And when he's not there with his father, what's he doing? If you get rid of this guy, I'm the one who's going to help you out. Look, I, I'm the one who's going to hear your case and connect with you. And you want a friend? Talk to me. Don't talk to David. Don't talk to my father. That's the sort of hypocrisy that we see here. A scheming lying, hypocritical attitude that will say the nicest things to someone's face, but then when you're not around them, watch out, because it's going to be all sorts of other things that you're saying. In the midst of that sort of treachery, that sort of hypocrisy, those kinds of schemes, notice what he says in verse 5. My soul wait in silence for God only, for my hope is from Him. Same phrase, right? What's different about it? Okay. There's a couple of other things I want you to notice. What's different? My soul waits in silence for God only. My soul wait in silence for God only. What's the difference in those two phrases? Yeah. Yeah. He's reminding himself, I've been doing this, I need to keep doing this, right? We can take this idea potentially to an extreme uh, in different ways, but I want to say it's Mahaney's Cross-Centered Life talks about preaching the gospel yourself, maybe some other books as well. Probably, yeah. So this is an idea that you might have heard. Here's truth. I'm believing it. There comes a point in the course of believing it in which I need to 
remind myself of it. Because there's a tendency to get discouraged in the midst of these circumstances because um, we begin to question whether it's really true. And it's not as though repeating the phrase over and over again makes it true. But sometimes rehearsing truths about God in our mind is what we need to do to refocus our attention and have a proper response in one of these kinds of situations. And so he turns from, I am doing this, to I need to keep doing this because it is still true. And then he expands on it in verses 7 and 8. On God, my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. And so there's this expression of, I shall not be greatly shaken. And then in verse 6, I shall not be shaken. And then in verse 7, he expands on what's true about God. On God, in God, my salvation, my glory rests. He is the rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. Which is pretty much the same thing that he said in the previous verse, but he's just repeating this truth about God to bring it home to his heart, to remind himself of what's true. Notice what changes in verse 8. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. What changes in verse 8? Look at the last phrase of verse 7 and the last phrase of verse 8. Yeah. This is not just true for the psalmist, right? This is true for all of God's people. So, part of this process of waiting for God and bearing up under trial is reminding ourselves of truth about God and talking to other people who follow God about the same truth that is also true for them. This is why, although this would have been in the context of the congregation of Israel, not the church, but this is why in our context, Gathering with God's people is important because it gives us opportunity to do this, right? To say, here's this trial I've been going through. Here's what I know is true about God. Here's what I'm reminding myself is true about God. Hey, this is true for you too. And when we speak into one another's lives in that way, we're reminded not just individually but together about who God is and what He's doing in our lives. Part of having a proper perspective on the opposition of the wicked against God's people is to recognize some of the lies that creep into our thinking with regard to what's true of them and what's true of us. So look at verse 9. Men of low degree are only vanity, and men of rank are a lie. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than breath. Do not trust in oppression. Do not vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. A lot of times we think that the solution to a trial is to change our circumstances, to be envious of someone else's circumstances. If, if I find myself to be poor, if only I was rich, this wouldn't happen. If I find myself to be rich, well, if I was poor, I wouldn't have this set of troubles. And the point that is being made here is people without God, rich or poor, are as nothing when God weighs them in the balance and when they have trusted in, for the rich person, oppression, their ability to manipulate circumstances to their will, or for the poor person, robbery, 
their ability to manipulate circumstances their will. What are they not doing? They're not trusting in God. And there's a hint of the psalmist saying, and I ought not be envious of them, because if my confidence is tied to something as fleeting and as unstable and as untrustworthy as riches, and I set my trust in it, it's going to make me not trust in God. Jesus said it this way, you can't serve two masters. You can't love God and money. And people will say, well, that seems like a strange thing to say. You can't love God and money. Like, how are those things? When we trust in money, we don't trust in God. When we trust in God, we can't be trusting in money. We've all had different experiences with this. Um... Perhaps some of us have been in a position where we have not been in want in the way that he says in verse 10 that you might vainly hope in robbery. Perhaps some of us have not been in the position where we thought, well, I have this power in the money that I have. I can live my life without God because I'm secure in money. But we all fall somewhere on that spectrum, right? And the psalmist is saying, when God evaluates your life, He's not weighing your pocketbook. He's not looking at the value in your checking account. He's not saying, what are all the things you do or don't have? The thing that God is concerned about is not possessions, but belief. Right? And who are we trusting in? Is it in money? You can trust in money if you have no money. You can trust in money if you have all the money in the world. But if you're trusting in money, you're not trusting in God. What is God concerned about? Look at verses 11 and 12. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God, and loving kindness is yours, O Lord, for you recompense a man according to his work. Think about this in context of the previous verses. Power belongs to God. Why should we trust in God? Because God is powerful, God is a refuge, God is a rock. So, he can be trusted. Why should we trust in God? Because he's a good God who has a relationship with his people. That word loving kindness is yours, loving loyalty. God is trustworthy, knows his people, cares for his people. And that last phrase, you recompense a man according to his work, if we violate what God expects of us through oppression, if we're rich, through robbery, if we're poor, God will call that into account, and it will not accomplish for us the thing that we thought it would accomplish, which is security, which can only be found in God. And so when you're in the midst of some kind of trial, and it seems as though there are people who are scheming against you because you follow God, there is potentially a temptation to say, following God is not worth it. It hasn't worked out so far, so I'm going to stop following God. But the psalmist doesn't do that. He reminds himself again of truth about God. He goes and talks to others of God's people about truth about God. And he reminds himself of what is going to be true of those people who are scheming and are hypocritical and are lying and are cursing, although they outwardly bless. What's true of them is they have their trust in something other than God. And in this context, it seems to be that they were trusting in riches, whether they were those who had power and lots of money and could oppress others, whether they were those who were 
weak in terms of their ability to control people with money, but instead they preyed upon people to get the money that they, they really desired. What is their end? God's going to evaluate their life. God will recompense a man according to his work. We don't see that right away. That seems a long way off. So we feel like maybe I should go the same route that they're going and it'll work out for me. And the psalmist urges us not to trust in those same kinds of things. This is where I think that we can take a passage like Psalm 62, God is a rock of refuge, and set it alongside another passage, like one that we find in the New Testament. Turn over to Matthew chapter 21. Jesus tells a parable at the end of the story, at the end of the chapter. About the middle point of the chapter, the chief priests and the elders say, Do you, uh, where's your authority to do miracles, to teach, and all these sorts of things? Jesus says, Where's the baptism of John from? And they say, We don't want to answer it, because if we say it's from heaven, why didn't you believe me? If we say it's from men, the people will attack us because they regard John as a prophet. We don't know. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So he tells them the parable in verses 28 through 32 of the man who has two sons. Go and work. I won't, but later he does. Go and work. I will, but he doesn't. Which one pleased him? They answer accordingly. Verses 33 through 41 is the parable of the vineyard. The uh, master has a vineyard in verse 33. And then he has a harvest, sends his slaves, and the vine growers say, you know what? We don't think that we want to give him what's his. So they beat the slaves and kill the slaves and stone another slave. Sends more slaves, they do the same thing. He sends his son, they will respect my son. When the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir, come let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him, threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? They said to him, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. And then come verses 42 through 46. Jesus said to them, Did you never read the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. Here's the connection point in my mind. Psalm 62 speaks of God positively as a rock of refuge, right? There's also a sense in which that same rock that you're hiking on that shelters you from the rainstorm when something blows up suddenly when you're, when you're out there in the wilderness or out there hiking or whatever, that rock is not safe, right? Because we often, not often, periodically hear tragic stories of here's this person and they were hiking on the rocks and they fell to their death on some boulders below or there was a landslide and it crushed them. 
The reason I set this passage alongside the other passage is because I think there's a connection between those two in that it is the same God who is both a rock of refuge for his people and a rock of destruction for those who reject him. Who are those who reject him? The sort of people that David was talking about in Psalm 62, that scheme against God's people, that trust in riches. Jesus confronted the Jews, the Israelites of his day, about those same sort of tendencies, and specifically confronted the Pharisees about their trust in themselves instead of in the one that God had sent, and said, here's the long-term consequence. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And then the statement about judgment. The one who falls in the sun, the stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Jesus, in this passage, is comparing himself to a rock, just like God the Father compared himself to a rock in Psalm 62 through the mouth of David. Same God, same rock, two opposite effects. The effect for God's people, refuge, security, and safety. The effect for God's enemies, destruction. I think these two passages, and others in the Bible as well, taken together, give us a, a complete picture of what God looks like as our rock. The idea of God as a rock of refuge is a comfort for God's people. When we are going through trials and difficulties and opposition of those who hate God and his people. The image of God as a rock of destruction is both a warning for God's people not to wander away from him and a warning to those who are oppressing and attacking God's people that their judgment is certain in God's eyes. It's not a maybe, it's a for sure. If they do not repent, this is the end result. And so as we look at this psalm, God is a rock. This idea that God is a rock in the face of schemers. There's rich schemers, there's poor schemers, there are those who oppose God's people. What are we supposed to do? We are supposed to trust in God as our rock, just like the psalmist did in Psalm 62. What things will distract us from doing this? Doubt, love of money, envy of the position of the wicked. I'm sure you've probably faced one of those this week. And if not this week, then last week or next week. All of us have these thoughts. Is it worth it to follow God? when trouble comes with following God, in addition to following God when there is trouble associated with following Him, it is easier to worship a God that doesn't ask anything of you, whether that's money or something else. Are we going to give in to those temptations? Are we going to be envious of the wicked? It looks like things are going all right for them. It looks like they're prevailing. What's the antidote to that sort of thinking? 
go back to what you know to be true about God. The problem in Psalm 62 is not a problem of knowledge because he knows it at the beginning of the passage and he knows it at the middle of the passage and he knows it at the end of the passage. What's the problem? The problem is being fully persuaded in his own mind that it's true. What helps us to be fully persuaded? Going back to what God has said about himself that we already know, talking to God's people about it, and looking at the big picture, right? Because the, the immediate circumstance in front of his face is, I'm in trouble. The big picture is, the rich guy and the poor guy, who scheme and trust in themselves or something else instead of God, God's going to call them into account. God's going to call me into account. What do I know that's true about God? Am I talking to the people around me about those truths? Am I thinking about the big picture of what God is doing in my life now and in my life in the future? Those sorts of thoughts and commitments and resolves will help us to be fixed on God as our rock and not to be overwhelmed by the opposition of those who oppose God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember that you are our rock. I pray that you would help us to, in those moments when we feel like we're that old building that's about to fall down, or the fence that's about to be pushed over by the wind, or whatever else it might be, whatever other picture we might use, that we will remember your truth and repeat your truth and talk to those around us about your truth, that you will bring to our minds the perspective of what you have said is true, not only right in the moment here and now, but also down the road, or that we will be confident that... You are a God who is powerful. You are a God who loves and cares for his people. And that that will give us grace to resist the temptations to wander away from you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Yes.